Luke chapter 11, please. Luke chapter 11, verse 2, And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer is actually given twice. Once here in Luke 11, the other time it's in Matthew 6. And Matthew 6 is the version that everybody quotes. If I say, let's all recite the Lord's Prayer together, you unconsciously go to Matthew's version of it, not Luke's version of it. Matthew's version is a longer version. It's got additions to it that's not here in Luke's version. But it's a model for prayer. And in Luke, it is an actual prayer to be prayed. Let me give you, recite this for you again. Probably in the original way that Jesus taught it to his disciples without the additions that came on later in history, it would sound like this. It would sound like, Abba, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Give us this day our bread that is needed. Forgive us our debts as we herewith also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. And that would have been the original prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And the other parts, you know, for thine is the kingdom, the glory, and the power, the doxology, and and other parts were added on in Matthew's version. They're not here in Luke's version. But the thing is, with the coming of the kingdom, a new age has dawned. John the Baptist, it says the law and the prophets were up to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the end of a line of prophets, the end of an age. And a new age has dawned. And I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I live in the time of that new age. And that new age is this wonderful announcement that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The situation is different than it was in the Old Testament. It's no longer something that is promised. It is now something that is in the process of being fulfilled. And since we live in this new age where the promise is being fulfilled, there is a new way to pray. And so the disciples of Jesus are watching him pray. And John taught his disciples to pray. And would you teach us to pray? And he's going to teach us how to pray with the knowledge that a new time in history has arrived. Before we look at bits and pieces of this uh, prayer that he taught us to pray, just a quick reminder, and it won't be labored because we spent a lot of time on it this morning, but we need to understand the generous nature of the kingdom. The generous nature That the king happens to be Abba, our father. 
that he's merciful. He is lavish in dispensing grace. And the nature of the king is that he is father. Don't need to emphasize that over and over, but I hope that's hitting our hearts, the nature of our king. Wow. Unbelievable and incredible. And the other thing that I haven't belabored much at all about the kingdom is that there's a tension between what is called already but not yet. Have you ever heard that phrase before? You heard it from me, I'm sure. Already the kingdom is here, but not yet the kingdom has arrived. There's many things about the teaching of Jesus that make it plain that in his ministry, while he walked on the earth and he passed it on to his disciples, that the kingdom of heaven has already arrived. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then you know the kingdom has arrived. And there's many indications that the kingdom is already here. But then he told parables about this, that would teach that the kingdom is not yet, but the kingdom only comes when Jesus appears the second time. When, he, when the king appears and he separates the sheep from the goats and the nations and those on his right hand and those on his left hand. And there's a lot of parables in the teaching of Jesus that has the kingdom yet in the future more about his second coming. So which is it? Is it already here or is it still in the future? And the best analogy we can come up with to help us to understand this, this what looks like to some people a contradiction, is to use the analogy, it's not perfect, but of a wedding. You have been espoused, you're engaged to be married, but the wedding hasn't taken place yet. You have an engagement ring on your finger, but not the wedding ring is on your finger. I could ask the simple question, if you are engaged to be married, but not yet married, are you single? How you answer that question will determine what kind of marriage counseling we will give you. Are you single? You're not yet married, you haven't said I do, you haven't signed the registrar yet, but the engagement ring is on your finger. Do you consider yourself single? And the answer is, of course not. You don't consider yourself single. But you're not yet married, but what you are is you are under obligation. You are promised. A claim has been made on your life, or you gave somebody else a claim on your life, and you're not your own. And you live for the future. You don't live for the past. You don't live for the present. Everything in your life is geared towards the future. And so you could say the process has begun and the process comes to its fullness when you actually stand at the altar and you say, I do. So you're already married, living like you are, but not yet married with all the privileges of it. You follow what I'm saying? And there are certain aspects of the kingdom of heaven that are still in the future that come through the fullness when Jesus appears the second time without sin unto salvation. But there are other aspects of the kingdom that already have the claim on your life. And the kingdom is already here, already affecting you, already controlling your behavior and your actions and so forth. And in order to understand the way that he teaches us to pray, we have to understand those two realities or much of the Lord's Prayer remains just a form we pray without a lot of content in our heart, what it actually means. And those two things are 
Your heavenly father, the king, is a heavenly father. He's a Abba. He's lavish and he is generous. And the other thing is, the kingdom has not yet been consummated, but the kingdom has already arrived and it's in the process of moving towards. This present world is still here. Have you noticed that? And there's still suffering and there's still difficulty and we as believers can experience persecution and challenges to our faith constantly. But nevertheless, the kingdom is still here. The kingdom is still here and we're moving towards the day of the Lord's return. Without the understanding of those things, this is just a prayer that we won't really catch what Jesus is trying to teach us when he wants us to pray. When you pray, here's the first reality. Say, now it, the Greek doesn't say our Father. It just says Father. And there's an important principle there because if we say our Father, it, 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 it hides in the shadows a little bit the intent of what Jesus was intending to teach us. When you pray, the first instruction he gives is you address Almighty God by the name Abba. Let that sink in. When you pray, you address God as Abba. That's an Aramaic word. It's the word that Jesus used when he prayed. In Mark 14:36, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating these great drops of blood, he cries out, he says, Abba, Father, if it is possible. Let this cup pass from me, but if not, I'll drink it. But I want you to note, he refers to God as Abba. That is his own prayer language. When Jesus prayed, he always called God Abba. Every recorded prayer in all the Gospels that we have of Jesus praying, he always addressed God as Father. Only one time he did not address God as Father. And that's when he was hanging on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason he didn't address God as Abba there is because he was acting out Psalm 22, in which he was quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But every, 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 every single time, every reference to Jesus praying, he always refers to God as Abba. Translated in your Bible as Father. The first lesson he was going to teach, now that the kingdom has arrived, when you talk to God, you call him Abba. That's your first lesson in prayer. First reality change that the kingdom has arrived. Call him Abba. He taught his disciples to pray that way. So much so that even in the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit, crying out, Abba, Father. Galatians chapter 4 verse 6, the Spirit of His Son has been sent into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. So it's the language that Jesus used, and it's the language that the Holy Spirit inside of you uses. Abba. So we need to take a few minutes and unpack what this word means. What does it mean to refer to God as Abba? 
The image of God as Father is found 15 times in the Old Testament. And in the context of every time that it's used, it suggests the following things. It suggests unconditional and irrevocable authority. And it also suggests the care of a parent to protect a child. Listen to this. Rarely, if ever, it was never used in prayer as a personal address to God. Never. Never. In the Old Covenant, nobody prayed and called God Abba or Father. Nobody. The concept of God as a father in a general sense, the one who created all things, the one who gives birth to all things, the one who originates all things, the concept is there, but never addressing him in prayer. In that way, it's not there. So when Jesus taught people to say, Abba, it's an entirely new concept. And you and I cannot appreciate how radical that was to the ears of the Jews to hear anybody refer to God as Abba in prayer. I mean, this is radical stuff. But the kingdom of heaven has brought about radical changes in our understanding of God. Because your faith in God will never rise above your concept of God. That's worth writing down. Your faith in God will never rise above your concept of God. And now that the kingdom has arrived, Jesus is saying your concept of God is Abba. And when you pray, you address Him by the name Abba. It's inconceivable to the human mind to address the Almighty God with such familiarity. That is in conceivable. As a matter of fact, the scribes and the Pharisees in the time of Jesus would argue about the meaning of the third commandment, which don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. And just to help you never to take the Lord God in the name in vain, when you swear an oath, they invented all sorts of things. You can take an oath in the name of heaven if you like. You can swear in the name of earth. Or you can swear by the name of the city of Jerusalem. And if you happen to fail in your oath, well, at least you haven't taken God's name in vain. And they had all these different laws created so you couldn't take the Lord's name in vain. And in the, in the midst of that kind of a culture, Jesus comes along and starts praying to God publicly as Abba. Never been heard before like that. Radical. Indeed, this was a radical thing. This word Abba is the language of a child. The first syllables when a baby learns to talk are these kinds of syllables. Ah, ba, ima, da, da, you know. All of these things, and every parent just loves it when the baby starts saying that stuff, and they go, there, the baby just called me. You know, they're the first syllables that are out of a baby. It says, ah, ba, or e, ma, or da, da, things of that nature. And it's the language of a child. Now think about it, because Jesus said, unless you be converted and become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've got to become like little children 
And the first syllable out of a child is Abba. Reference to God. Learning to speak to God like that. And then, of course, that phrase came to be known as just the intimate language between family members. And referring to your parent as Abba or your mother as Ima, uh, but Abba means, it, it talks about a sense of intimacy. It talks about a sense of endearment. It talks about a sense of simplicity. Now, in English, this doesn't work. But in other cultures, and I've had the privilege of traveling to some other cultures, and I remember being in a car one time driving with a a family from India. uh, And they were living in Dublin. I was in Dublin. I was staying in their house. And and, uh, her name was Baby. I remember that. You call this adult woman, you call her baby. You know, it's interesting. You know, but I, I remember traveling with them in, in, the, in their car one time, and they have two adult sons, not little boys, adult sons, and driving in, in the car, and there was a, almost an accident, and the, the, the 20-year-old son, or I don't know, 17-year-old son, goes, Daddy! You know, that surprised me. Because... In our culture, daddy is the language of a tiny one only. And then when the children get a little more older and sophisticated, it's well, dad. And when they get older, it's father. You know. But in the language of Jesus, we don't change our titles for God. God is always Abba. That's an important principle for us to realize because what Jesus is trying to get across to us is that your relationship with God now that the kingdom has come near you your relationship with God is always of one of great intimacy with Abba with Father an important an important principle you know, it would be strange. Have you ever seen it happen where there's a 60-year-old man and he's talking to his dad, his father, who's 90, and the 60-year-old would go, Daddy? Now, you might think that's funny, but in other cultures, that's what happens. Even when you're 60-year-old, you call your parent Daddy at the age of 60. That's the language of immature children. No, no. To, in English, is the language of immature children. But in other cultures, and in the Bible culture, it's not. It's the language of deep intimacy. Don't ever lose the intimacy. First lesson is when you pray. Be intimate with your Father. Abba. An important lesson. Very, very Important lesson. Can you imagine, I don't know if I can imagine or not, but the great gap that God has bridged to make himself known to you and to me. Who is this God? The majestic, sovereign, creator of the heavens and the earth, sovereign over history. Sovereign over the nations. Plucks up nations when he wants to pluck them up. Plants nations when he wants to plant them. Throws the stars in their courses. This almighty, 
sovereign God who is transcendent. And we can't get enough words, omnipotent, omnipresent. I can't invent the words. I'm so limited in my vocabulary. But he has bridged that distance. And to come to me, come to you, the poor, the disenfranchised, the oppressed people of the earth. And this mighty God wants to be known to you as Abba. My, I don't get it. I, I can't comprehend. I get it, but I can't get it. You know what I'm saying? What, what a, a gap between God and me and He's bridged and He's made Himself known to me and He makes Himself known to you as Abba. And the first thing of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and changing us is the Spirit in us cries out, Abba, Father. This is the language of the Holy Spirit. So now that the new age has come, this is how we pray. Abba. Like a child dependent. And then after that, we have the petitions. And I want you to note the order of the petitions. It's not we bring our needs to God first, not at all. Because we've been born of the Spirit, because we have entered into the reality of the kingdom, there's a stirring within our hearts. And the first concern of our heart is concern for God more than it is for our own needs. That's important. And the first prayer is, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. This actually was a prayer in the synagogues that Jesus copies a prayer from the synagogues in the Jewish synagogues. I've been thinking on this verse, these thoughts uh, all week. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. And I don't know if I can give it justice to what I feel on the inside of myself. I don't know if I can really articulate what I'm sensing. I just pray that God somehow communicates the truth to you because I don't know if I can convey it properly. But in our hearts, because we've tasted the powers of the world to come, we've tasted the good word of God. The Holy Spirit has invaded our hearts. There is now a deep cry within our hearts that the name of God should be honored. That His character should be recognized. That His glory should be revealed. The believer, you and I, feel it very deeply in our own heart that we live in the midst of an evil and an unbelieving world. Have you ever had this experience? I've had it. I wish I would have it more. But have you ever had this experience? That you've got the kingdom of God inside of you. That you have experienced righteousness and peace and the joy of the Holy Ghost. Because Paul would say the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. But it's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And you have the experience of having a storm in your life and somehow the King of Kings speaks peace into your heart 
and you don't know how to explain it, but you have got peace on the inside of your heart. You don't know how to explain it. The world is on your shoulders, but you know what? You've got the joy of the Lord anyway. We're crazy people. You know that? We are insanely happy people, no matter what's going on around us. Right? The pressures and burdens of this world and sickness and finances and family and troubles, problems not even of our own making are upon us. But we're crazy people because in the midst of it all, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. My peace I give unto you. And you know what? The world can't take it away. We're just insanely happy people. No matter what's going on. Because we've got the garment of praise, not the spirit of heaviness. Marvelous gift of the Holy Spirit. And we have this peace inside of us. And we live in the midst of the world that doesn't know peace at all. We live in an evil and a fallen world where there's wars and there's rumors of wars. And there's a groaning inside of us. There's a yearning on the inside of us. Oh, that the world would know this peace that I have in my heart. How I wish I could communicate and impart this peace in my heart in the midst of an evil, suffering world. I don't know how to explain it, but I hope you've had the experience of groaning. I hope you've had the experience of a deep, deep yearning. You know it's well with your soul. You know that it is. But you know it's not well with your children. You know it's not well with your neighbor. You know it's not well with the world outside your door. But you know it's well with your soul. And there's this yearning. Oh God. Oh God. Let the world know what I know. Do you have that experience? Do you ever have this wish that you could just wave a magic wand if it ever worked that way and just make everything okay for people? You just wish you could do that? You just wish that what you have come to know in your heart could be a reality to other people? Don't you just wish you could do it? We all do. And, and there are times when we have the presence of God. There are times... In Romans 8.23, Romans 8.26 puts it this way. With groanings that cannot be uttered. Because there is deep passion and deep desire in us that God's name would be hallowed. That God would be sanctified in the eyes and ears and in the mouths of the whole world. But you know what? I've got good news. One day it will be. Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the name of God will be hallowed by everybody. 
That's the not yet part. But there's an already part. He's already howling in my heart. How about yours? Amen. And then we pray, may your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Well, I know what the end of the story is. Have I ever told you what the end of the story is? Glory. The end of the story is glory. Man, you ought to be there on that day. You really need to be there on that day when Jesus comes. You need to be there on that day when your corruptible body puts on incorruption. Please come, Lord Jesus. When your mortal body puts on immortality. When that which is sown in weakness is raised in power. When that which is natural is raised up spiritual. You need to be there. You really do. You need to be there that day when you're delivered not just from the penalty of sin. More than being delivered from the power of sin. You're delivered from the very presence of sin itself. Sin will cease to exist. You need to be there on that day. That's the not yet part. But there's an already part to it. Because in my heart, in my spirit, in my inner man, I've been transformed. The Spirit of God has already made old things pass away. He's already made all things become new. He's already raised me from the dead. My heart's been changed. What will happen to my body has already happened to my inner man. That's the already part of the kingdom of heaven. He's already done it. He'll finish it when He comes. But the process has already begun. But because it's already begun, because it's already an inner reality in our hearts and in our spirits, in our inner man... There's a yearning. And man, we could just wish we could make that true for everything we see. We wish we could make that true for every situation around us. We want the world to know what is here. And I've been meditating, and I shared this briefly at the prayer meeting uh, on Friday, I think it was. I've been meditating on this story in John chapter 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody thought Jesus was late. But Jesus purposely waited for Lazarus to die. Because he knew this was going to be a miracle, a miraculous sign. And he went to the tomb of Lazarus and both Mary and Martha, Oh Jesus, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. And the Bible says, And Jesus groaned in his spirit. And then it says, And Jesus wept. And then when it says, and the people began to say, Well, could not this man who caused the blind to see have stopped this man from dying? And when Jesus heard the people say that about him, the Bible says yet again, and Jesus groaned in himself. He was groaning. He knew what he was going to do. But when he saw what sin has done to people... When he saw what sickness and disease have done to people. When he has seen what demons have done to people. All the accumulative human experience that he is gathering. When he sees the devastation of what is done in people's lives. When he has seen how hopeless people have come. 
How futile life has become. He knows he didn't create man to be like that. And when he hears the anguish of the human heart, when he sees the anguish of the human soul, when he sees what people are, how they're weeping hopelessly at the tomb of Lazarus, it says he groaned. He groaned in himself. The Greek word for groan is the picture of a horse. Get this picture. A horse standing on its back feet. And his front feet are up in the air. And the horse is snorting. That's exactly the Greek word. That's the word they use to describe a horse like that. He's on his back feet. His front feet are in the air. And he's snorting. That's the word groaned. And Jesus is groaning. He's sick and he's tired of seeing what sin has done to people. He's he's tired of seeing the hopelessness and the anguish in the human soul. He's tired of seeing people without victory and without hope. He's tired of seeing people oppressed under burdens and anguish. And there arises within him a prayer. There rises within him a strong desire to change that situation. He knows what he's going to do. And he's so moved emotionally. So moved with compassion. And he's in anguish because other people are in anguish. He says, roll the stone away. You see, this is the work of the Spirit of God in us. In the book of Judges, when it says, And the Spirit moved upon him from time to time. When it says about David when he was anointed, the, the Spirit moved him from time to time. If you could read this in the Hebrew language, it's he became agitated because of the presence of the Spirit in his life. Agitated. Philistines. Oh, look at that. Look at what the Philistines are doing. Oh. Look at that sickness. Oh. Look what the demon has done. Oh. And agitated. There's spirit in him agitating him at what he is seeing. And this is out of sync with the peace he's got in his own heart. And there is a yearning and there's a craving and there's a groaning. Got to do something about it. Roll the stone away. And he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And if we are people of the Spirit, people have already entered the kingdom, people who have experienced the peace, the righteousness and the joy in our own heart, we're agitated when we see people in bondage. We're agitated when we see people Hopeless and in anguish. And we know somebody who can do something about it. And we know what the end of the story is. But there's a cry in our heart. Can you bring the future forward in time, please? And let's see some of that power released now. You follow what I'm saying? Are you catching the heart of what I'm trying to articulate here? Would your kingdom come? Can we borrow from that future and bring it forward? 
And instead of waiting until that resurrection day for bodies to take on immortality, can we have a foretaste of it now and see sick bodies healed? Can we have a foretaste of it now and see demons cast out? Can we bring some of the future into the already? And that's what the gift of the Holy Ghost is. It's the earnest of our inheritance. It's a tasting of the powers of the world to come. And there's a yearning and there's a cry in our heart that God's name would be hallowed, that God's name would be sanctified, and that God's power would be manifest now. Let your kingdom come. And when we pray, let your kingdom come, what we're asking is for the power of the future to come forward in time so that the anguish that we feel in our hearts can be ministered to. We want people changed. Amen? We want the power of God so people are set free. Lord, let your kingdom come. Manifest your kingdom now. I know what it's like in the last day, but let your kingdom come. Let it come on that day, but let it come now. And there's this heart cry and we groan. So when Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name, and let your kingdom come, that's what he's driving at. That's what it's like to pray as people have entered into the kingdom of heaven. Then he prays, give us our daily bread. What is the bread? It is not, first and foremost, a reference to your daily needs. It's not. One of the great teachings of Jesus and the great parables that he taught as the end day, end time day, the day of his appearing is like a banquet feast. And the poor and the beggars are invited. Amen. As a great banquet at the end of time, a marriage supper of the Lamb. Give us that bread. It's a yearning to participate in the banquet at the appearing of Jesus. But like the other requests, but it's also, can you bring that provision of the last day? Can you bring it forward in time? Can you supply our daily needs today? And of course you can. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then these things will be added to you. So don't sweat it. Let's remember who our God is. He's a Father. And it's His pleasure to give us the kingdom. And then He tells us about forgiveness. He has this thing about forgiveness. If we're entered into the kingdom, then it has changed our relationship with people. The best way to understand this phrase, if I put it in these words, because a lot of people take this and say, well, God won't forgive me until I forgive other people. I hope we don't pray those kind of prayers, because we might have trouble forgiving other people. And if God's forgiveness for us is dependent on how we forgive other people, well, maybe we just won't get forgiven that much. The better way of saying it is this. Um, Forgive us our debts as we forthwith forgive other people their debts. In other words, it means this. You have been forgiven. 
And the evidence of you have been forgiven is that you give to other people what you have received freely. You forgive others because you yourself have been forgiven. Jesus taught freely you have received. Freely give. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. I have received mercy. How dare I withhold it from anybody? I have received forgiveness. How dare I withhold it from anybody? The evidence that I have entered is that I start freely giving everything that I have freely received. So which means that we are people of the kingdom, that we are the most merciful and forgiving people the world has ever seen. And I can't even hear an amen on that one. I thought you'd really take with the opportunity there. We are the most forgiving and the most forgiving people, the most merciful people the world has ever seen because we ourselves are the object of forgiveness and mercy. And then it says, don't lead us into temptation. And this has, has, has caused people really... And yet the Lord does test us. And now we're praying, Lord, don't lead us into temptation. Well, which is it? This verse is better understood if you say it like this. Don't let us succumb in the hour of testing. That is far more accurate translation, far more accurate understanding of what this petition is. Don't let us fail in the hour of testing. Because it is assumed in the Bible that God does test His people. You can't get away from it. Genesis 22, and God tested Abraham in the sacrifice of Isaac. Deuteronomy 8, 2, how God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. How He tested you in the circumstance of manna. Tested you in these all different circumstances. Why? To see what was in your heart, whether you would obey or not. God does test us. And what this prayer is, is a recognition that God does take barometer readings of our heart. God does allow circumstances to come into our experience. Some small, some great. But He does allow circumstances to come. Why? Because He wants to see your heart response. He wants to see your heart reaction. He wants to see where your heart lies, what direction it leans. So I'm sure He does test us. But this prayer is, don't let us fail. Don't let us fail in the hour of testing. It's okay if you fail. You get to take the test again. And how many know you really don't want to take it again? You'd rather learn the first time around. But don't let us succumb. Don't let us, you know, watch and pray that you fail not, Jesus said to his disciples. Watch and pray. So, Lord, give me the strength to go through the test that I go through. I know sometimes they frighten me. Sometimes they scare me. Sometimes they keep me awake at night thinking about it. Hey, of course, that's, I'm talking about me, right? You know, you know. But don't let me fail. Let me have faith in the hour of, of the test. Let me not succumb to temptation. You know, and that's what this prayer is all about. You know, so it's a recognition that you and I can't 
handle the stresses of life in our own strength. Come on, only a little child would say agree with me. As adults, we don't want to admit that. We don't want to admit it. This is an admission that we cannot handle the stresses of life in our own strength. So quit trying. Instead, be as a little child and go, Abba. Put your whole trust as a baby has to put his trust. The baby doesn't even know what's trusting. Did you know that? The baby doesn't even know what's trusting. But it's born trusting. You and I are born of the Spirit. We can't handle the stresses of life. Forget it. Call to Abba. Keep me in the hour of testing. Keep me there. So what are we learning by the Lord's Prayer? We learn that Jesus wants to live us, us to live with a new orientation where God's concerns are first. He wants us to know that in this life we really are helpless and we need God's mercy. But it's His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He wants us to know that our relationship with God demands a new relationship with everybody else because we have to freely give to others what we have freely received from God. And therefore, we're the most loving, pleasant, merciful, forgiving people the world has ever seen. Amen. Amen. And we have to understand that the kingdom has begun. It's already, but not yet. And until Jesus comes... There's always going to be a yearning in our heart for things to get better. Always will be. But the yearning is going to be so strong at times that we call on the power of the future to come forward in time so that you and I could stand at a sickbed and say, Lazarus, come forth. So you and I can stand at somebody who's demon-possessed and say you're out in the name of Jesus. So somebody who's got anguish and turmoil and addiction in their life, we could stand at them. And somehow in the presence of God, addictions are broken by the power of God. There's a yearning in our heart. When we say your kingdom come, that's what we're asking for. That's what we're yearning for. That's what we're desirous for. So let me just read the prayer in its original form, and that's it. Abba, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Give us this day our bread that is needed. Forgive us our debts, as we herewith also forgive our debtors. And don't let us succumb in the hour of testing. The kingdom has arrived. That's how we pray.